well when you're floating in a tin can far above the world. And planet Earth is blue and there's nothing you can do. And you're floating in a most peculiar way and the stars look very different today. And you hear something on your radio that frightens you. But you can't do anything about it. Ground control to Major Tom. Your circuit is dead. There's something wrong. <laughs> Can you hear me, Major Tom? Can you hear me? Well, it's a good thing you're still in radio distance because you can tune in as you're floating off into the ether, the dark night of space. Although flooded with light, it's only visible when you're looking directly at the sun because there's nothing to transmit the medium of light in a manner that scatters the light such that it reflects back to your eye. Well, you can tune in the Rogue Philosopher podcast. And you can listen to this metaphysical discussion begun in the wee hours of a random Tuesday morning in a random season in a mysterious part of Western English-speaking country. This is the Rogue Philosopher Podcast. I am the Rogue Philosopher, presumably one who has knowledge of metaphysical means, metaphysical matters, and metaphysical consciousness. In any event, I, I, I am starting this... You'll, you'll, you'll notice the difference. I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a confession. I'll tell you a secret. I'm going to splice together some from now and some from the morning or whenever it is I can resume this. But I wanted to at least initialize it now while my fading inspiration still held some sway over me. But my family are sleeping and I need to be very mindful. So it'll start out very low-key, which I think is all right, because this this initially is a, a subject that is not necessarily one that would arouse intense passion, but I mean, it can. It, it can. I mean, even to, even to uh, yelling and, and, and even perhaps even fighting. But for the most part, I mean, disabled people are, we run the gambit of, of temperament and resignation and bravery and, and, and dignity and grace. We run the gambit of these things. I personally am not an activist. I, I dabbled when I was 20. In environmental activism, I was I was not a little to the left. I was considerably to the left. I think Churchill is right. Winston Churchill is correct when he when he speaks of uh, if you are a young man, you should be a liberal. And when you become a wiser, presumably, although I think the case can be made that it's not wisdom but cowardice uh, the, the fear of risk but when you reach middle age and you begin to um, even to pass into your maturity your full the fullness of your maturity you are a conservative 
or at least you want to preserve a semblance of the status quo. Uh, and you question the changes that have come and the changes that are coming. Um, but I think, and I, I, I take heart from this, I have some hope in that I think the majority are beginning to recognize now on, on all, all uh, sides of the political spectrum that there is a small group of, of revolutionary agitators, and, and that's really what they are. And their goal really is the overthrow of Western capitalism. That's, that's what Marx, uh, Lenin, Engels, Trotsky, and Stalin, and Mao, that was their goal. And that's what they're going to get. I don't see how they can be defeated, which is... But, but the fact that the majority can recognize now their folly, or at least their wanton destruction, um, even if they are sympathetic with their, um, their goals and their worldview. Um, now, it, I... <laughs> I, I, indirectly, uh, because the disabled are often co-opted, or we choose freely to join. Because if there's an oppressed class, uh, that is a, an oppressed minority out there, that is that is truly oppressed, not out of malice necessarily, although there may be some elements of that depending on the on the person, the the disability. I think. I think uh, mentally challenged people are certainly an oppressed class, and it is out of a more of a hatred. I think, and we mustn't forget that. Um, although it's not come to it yet here in this country, that only two generations ago, in the United States, they were sterilizing <sighs> tens of thousands, and they were, you know, they they weren't they weren't murdering. But um, they might not have disapproved of the excesses of Nazi Germany with regard to getting rid of the uh, worthless eaters, life unworthy of life. And it's somewhat alarming because although I consider myself uh, pro-choice, I am not for infanticide, for murder, or for uh, abortions after the third trimester. And the reason for this is because what, what blinded me was preterm birth. It's retinopathy of prematurity. And they elected to keep me alive. They didn't have to. They could have, if I had been a different situation under different circumstances, uh... A fetus weighing two pounds, two ounces at um, uh, less than 24 weeks, it's still okay to abort them. I mean, but but I, I was fine. Had I been born at full term, I wouldn't have been blinded. The, the retinopathy of prematurity was caused by the treatment protocol in 1973. It was, it was still a... Um, it was still an unknown science. And there... Their goal was more to keep the infant alive at all cost and flood them with oxygen. It's better to 
risk them being blinded or uh, uh, crippled potentially uh, with cerebral palsy or even even uh, brain damaged, but at least they're alive. Better that than to let them die. And, and they would use high concentrations of oxygen. <laughs> they didn't find the... They didn't find a better mixture of oxygen to use until 1983. Um, but they also uh, dabbled with cryotherapy to freeze, to prevent the, um, the retina from overgrowth and being torn away. Uh, the blood vessels feeding the retina at less than 24 weeks, six months, I was three months premature, hadn't finished developing yet in, in their turn in any case. And there are still, um, there's still development left that needed to be done in the brain. I think some of the, the key and most important growth occurs in the last three months of, of uh, gestation. And so to be born three months early to weigh under the, the, the cutoff. I think it's two pounds, three ounces when they'll really aggressively fight for you. And I weighed two pounds, two. Yet, I mean, we, we have in, well, in 19, at that point, I'm not even sure the date of Roe v. Wade, but was within weeks of, of uh, before or after me being born. And I, I like I said, you know, I'm not trying to stir up controversy with this. I'm pro-choice, but I'm against... I think it should be rarely, rarely done. And although not... It, it shouldn't be... In my opinion, it obviously shouldn't be blockaded uh, and violence done to women. I think that's, that's, that's abhorrent, but... It shouldn't be encouraged either. And I, I, without reading the statute, I know I'll put my foot in my mouth by saying this, but I'm going to anyway, because in New York, I understand now that a baby can be delivered. Uh, it's still a fetus while it remains in the mother. Uh, it can be... It can be aborted, even though were it to be born, it would be considered full-term. Uh, that's, uh, troubling, troubling. And, but in any event, I mean, that's not my main goal, either in this podcast or in what I'm saying today. It's not a fight that, that I have the, um, the intellect, the grasp of law, uh, to, to jump into on one side or the other. Uh, but I think it, it's in that way, it's representative of the excesses of, of, of identity politics and, and the fears of, the very legitimate fears women have that their rights will be taken away. And I think the equally legitimate argument that life should be preserved somehow, you know, that there, there, ought, to be a, there ought to be a balance there ought to be uh, there ought to be protocols, and there should be support. Uh, there should be 
if, if, if she decides to have the baby, but she's a single mother or he doesn't have a good support network or whatever, we ought to be building better communities to protect all of our people. And that indirectly plays in because it, the disabled, the disabled, I know I said I wasn't an activist, the disabled are in, in this society an overlooked, underappreciated, but nonetheless excluded class for one reason or for another, but the exclusion is there. And why I'm doing this at 1 a.m. on a random Tuesday morning instead of waiting seven hours is I, I was looking at a number of different books by disabled authors. Uh, and and I was I was a little disturbed. Um, the idea of uh, the, to me the idea of uh, disability pride. I don't understand it. I, I mean, you're proud of what you do. You're proud of who you are. In that, your integrity. Uh, your force of will, your um, determination, and and your stubbornness in the in the face of very painful, perhaps seemingly overwhelming odds. These are things that you express pride for. I don't understand, and I've never understood the. You know, well, I have this attribute and I belong to this group and I'm proud. I'm proud that I have this attribute. All right, well, <clears throat> okay, there are things to be said in favor of that. But I don't want to be defined by my disability, so why would I express pride for it? I had nothing to do with it. Living with it has been exceptionally difficult, but not because of its limitations, but because of society's random obstacles thrown in my path, mine and in every disabled person's. Um, why should I be proud of that? I, I can't, I can't fathom or grasp the 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 drive now that people need. Like, like it's a fad, you know? Well, I gotta belong to this group. I'm in the in-group, and I'm proud to be in the in-group. You know, and, and it seems to me, it almost seems stupid. I'm proud to be broken. Well, okay, dude, yeah, you, you shouldn't be um, made fun of because you're disabled or because you're this or you're that. But to me, I feel like I would be going out there and saying an incredibly stupid thing. Oh, I'm proud to be broken. I'm proud that, that I'm broken in this particular manner that allows me to belong to the fad identity group of the hour, okay? I don't approve. I think at least it reflects tremendous psychological instability at best. And at worst, profound ignorance and or complete idiocy. And I don't mean mentally challenged uh, people who can't, 
they can't help how their minds work or don't work according to our arbitrary standards. And that was another thing. I was, I was, um, I was looking at different books about IQ and intelligence, and we, we have um, several contradictory currents, not one of which will help anyone involved, in that we have um, an implicit system of hierarchical value assigned to um, in, in, in this case to the capacity to be able-bodied or uh, living in a disabled body or the capacity for one's intellect or lack thereof because we've, we have a terrible uh, implicit bias against the handicapped in all of its forms and facets and we certainly have a bias against uh, people who are mentally challenged. And I think it's, it's deeper and it's worse than that. Because it isn't just uh, that, that people uh, uh, judge, judge mentally handicapped according to an arbitrary and ever-changing standard. Uh, that values what can you do for me? What are you capable of? What can you contribute in, 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 you know, in monetary dollars? We're valuing people now according to what we perceive their, their investment. Okay, and I understand part of that's probably just the cruelty of human nature and of all nature. But there's a deeper more sinister even than that is that that it's implicit in the culture and in the language i can prove this more more accurately in a later date that the less intelligent one is the less conscious they are now what do i mean i mean that we don't put foremost in our evaluation of intelligence the attributes of intelligence. For example, we don't, we don't say that smarter people have faster computational speed. They can solve problems more quickly and with more creative and unusual solutions. They, you know, build reusable rockets or they build quantum computers. Right? That will benefit us all, won't it? Now, someone with an IQ of 70 or less, are they building stuff that will help us? No. Are they building a better convection oven? Or are they designing better architecture and roadways and maglev trains? No. No. And again, no. And then there is a sinister but true um, observation that the height of, of violence and violent crime usually falls upon people between IQs of 70 and 90. Again, and then there is a, um, and th these, are, these are facts. I can back this up with, with studies. Now, the, one can say that the studies are biased or you can attack the 
you can attack, and I think it's not unjustifiable as a challenge. I, 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 can't, I don't think it's correct, but you can attack the quality of the human beings doing the studies and that they have implicit bias or they're cold-hearted or whatever and they're, they're ableists. Okay, but, but below the IQ level of between 85, 83 and down, the United States military will not induct you into the armed services. Now they tried. Okay, not a lot of people know this. In the 1960s, they drafted hundreds, thousands of men whose IQs were, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 50s. Um, and they very cynically put them in the front lines in combat units. They were uh, known by the appellation of McNamara's morons because the program was initiated by Robert McNamara. Why he thought that would be beneficial, I do not know. There are repeated cases of, of these young men not being able to follow orders, not understanding the orders given them, and even discharging their weapons and killing their fellow soldiers. Why did he do that? Why? You know, and, and part of me has to think, well, up until then, they were, they were legally allowed to sterilize uh, and to prevent them from reproducing. I don't need to... It's too easy to bring... One, one, one now invokes the name of Hitler so often now to smash the other side of the argument that you're involved in, it's lazy to me. It, it reflects a kind of a... Of a, of a it reflects an, uh, an inability to argue one's case and a lack of courage to stand behind it. And that's why you see, you know, certain parties calling each other by that, you know, by his name, invoking his name and all that it represents, you know. Uh, the Holocaust, uh, the wars, and 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 to me, the issue that hits closest to home because it was so popular across the Western world uh, is the T four, the T four program that the Nazis carried out, which is the logical conclusion of all eugenics, and a lot of the American eugenicists. Would, did not approve of it, would never have approved of it, were not going out and, and killing people or being violent against them. Um, but that's the logical conclusion of, of eugenics. And so I'm not bringing that in uh, to have cheap points. Because the, fact, the facts are that they said it at Nuremberg and it was true. They drew inspiration from our scientists who were at the forefront of their field of eugenics. It was a widely well-respected branch of science. I haven't begun to read it yet, but I have several books by leading eugenicists and a book about, about one. Um, 
this this wasn't backroom pseudoscience. I mean, that's that's how they speak of eugenics now, uh, in 2019. But in 1919, uh, modern eugenics was the same as the the cutting edge of, of of psychiatry, for example, or psychology. Except that eugenics is coming back, as I've said. It, it's simply coming back now in another form. And in some sense, it does less direct harm because you're editing the genes. No one's getting hurt. You're just, you're writing things in and writing things out. But the, the, the underlying, uh, the, the, what is it, the impetus, the inspiration, is the wish to eliminate the imperfect. But all of these things are, are swirling around in the background. I mean, what I'd hope to delve into in this, in this edition is the metaphysical question that I can answer to some degree of, of accuracy and satisfaction. What is it like to be blind? What is the phenomenological experience of blindness? Such a radically different experience. Um, it's, it's dramatically different. And the way we live our lives is, is also dramatically different. Although we try, many of us, do our damnedest to be sighted people. Now and now, whether that's out of out of pride or shame or individual ambition and drive, or uh, the need to prove worthiness, for what whatever reason, most a lot of people that I've known, and I too, uh, who you know, blind people who were born blind. We did everything we could in our childhoods to not be. To, uh, because the, the, the social implications, you, you're always seen as having less, being capable of giving less, and being therefore worthy of less. Because to me, it looks like, and it feels like, there's... A small number of blind men and women who succeed in their lives as their peers. They have the American dream. They've studied law, for instance, and become great lawyers. Or they've, my God, there's a there's a <laughs> a blind running back in the NFL next season, perhaps. I mean, he's a college senior. He's a running back. He's blind. Now, what the media doesn't say, he may have more vision, not enough to help him see in day-to-day -day life, but he might not be totally blind. And so you see, there's a misunderstanding immediately by the media of what does blindness mean? It doesn't mean mono monotonally across all blind people that they are all fully, functionally incapable of seeing. You know, but I, who should know better? I'm still amazed. He's, why, is he insane? He's a running back in the NFL. He's blind. Yeah, and he scores pretty well. I've heard of blind physician. Uh, 
I wouldn't fear going to see him. I, you know, obviously everyone knows of Eric uh, Weinmeyer, um, who climbed Mount Everest about 20 times. Um, there's obviously there's lawyers and there's writers and there's professors. I know of, uh, there's, I think in Bangor, Maine, there's, um, a blind physicist. I've heard of blind astronomers, a blind astronomer. I mean, and obviously there are, 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 uh, very high intelligence, genius mathematicians. I say that because I can barely add two plus two and get five. I mean, it, it, it takes, it's tremendously difficult for me to do math of any kind. And, and as I said, when, you know, I have to think hard to remember that two plus two is five. All right. Wait a minute. It's not, is it? Fuck. It bugs me because I can never get the tips right either. If I go out and I have something to eat, I, I've, I've always got to stop and... You know, it's embarrassing. It's like, well, I don't know what the tip is. And well, well thank God Siri can um, can just tell me, you know, this is the tip. But so so I'm blown away by astronomers and mathematicians and, and physicists, the hard sciences, chemists, because I'm quite incapable. And and that isn't because of blindness. That's that's because of my mental lack my complete lacking of the proper faculties to do such things in my head or otherwise on paper. Although it might be worthy to point out in my defense, I went to uh, a very rural school and while some of the teachers there uh, meant did the best they could and they meant well, some of them did not do the best they could and did not mean well. We had bully teachers. We had teachers who abused students and humiliated them emotionally, physically. Okay. And, and it would not have been a school that even with all of the checks and balances of no child left behind, it would have been a school left behind. And um, if, if they did, if they did an audit in today's understanding, uh, <laughs> they would have probably closed it down. I mean, because there were, there were, there was, there was, I mean, I mean, straight up child abuse, you know, smashing kids into walls, hitting them in, in a time when, when even though it was a, it was a, 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 a primitive era. It was sophisticated enough so that corporal punishment was outlawed. It still went on. It still happened. And there were quite a number of, of uh, teachers at that school who, in, who beat the kids, beat them. And perhaps being blind and trying to learn math in such an inferior environment that in some ways did very little, uh, uh, let's say if you had a learning disability, now we know, we know what learning disabilities are now. In those days, they knew it too. In this rural school, the knowledge hadn't filtered in yet. And so 
It didn't matter if you were blind or if you had a learning disability, if you were dealing with some form of emotional disability, like, I mean, depression or uh, mental illness, because there was a lot of booze and drugs and abusive parents. I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of alcoholics. So the kid might get whacked at school and, and smacked around, go home and get beat up even more. And the reaction of, of uh, public servants when a kid came in with a black eye and had obviously been smacked around by their father, they looked the other way. They looked the other way. In that day and age, it was said, well, that's the family's business. It's not ours. And so they and uh, all branches of state government that had anything to do with children and child protection or welfare. Their policy was to look the other way. And it didn't matter. I mean, there were, there were families where the children were, were actually being raped. And the policy was the same. Keep the family together. Look the other way. Okay? Not the best environment for a child with special needs. Although, as I said, there were others in that system who did the best they could do, limited by the constraints of that system. I mean, in the end, I wish they'd done more in certain respects, but uh, it was it was at times very difficult, and at times the solutions coping with blind ch- child, I was the first one mainstreamed. Probably in the whole state, first one mainstreamed. There was a there was a cadre of uh, ten or fifteen kids that I knew of in in the lower half of the state um, who were being mainstreamed at that time, or who had been as I was. Uh, the pressure was very high uh, at, at times too surrender and send the children to schools that deal with handicaps. So, you know, Perkins, School for the Blind. There was a strong push when I was 10, 10 or 11 years old. Right at the time, my family was disintegrating, as so many families did in those days, to just drop out of the main system and, and go to Perkins trouble is Perkins had moved on and they had changed their mandate and their focus and they weren't they weren't the Perkins of Helen Keller's day it wasn't the Perkins of of uh, Anagnus I think is I think he was a, a physician Dr. Anagnus who invented it um, these weren't these weren't the days of Mary Ingalls Wilder okay they weren't the it it had hit a level of uh, of, of increasing uh, well, I have to use this word very carefully. Um, let's just suggest that they had lost a lot of the capacity to address the needs of blind children who were not coping with any other disabilities. And they had changed it to cope with children with multiple physical and 
mental disabilities. And it's even more horrible for me to think back because all of the autistic children that I encountered in my childhood were at the Perkins School. And they didn't know. They sort of understood there was this disease called autism and that people were locked in or unable to communicate. But for the most part, even professionals, autism, and, and, and I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, what the DSM um, said, or I think it was the DSM-3 by that, or was it 2? I know 1980 they revised the DSM for the second time, I believe. Maybe it was two, three. Um, and then it was three dash R, and then it was IV, and now it's we're in the DSM five. I have the DSM one on my desktop, incidentally, and I also have DSM five. The DSM one is maybe sixty pages, maybe. Okay, from the early 1950s. It's maybe 60 pages. The DSM-5 is... <laughs> maybe 800, 900, 1,000 pages. 1,000 pages. And yet, you know, people's, people's illnesses haven't evolved that much makes you uh, makes you kind of wonder it's it's sinister and the way those kids were treated most of them probably of average intelligence or higher locked in by their autism it 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 can only be described as as torture i witnessed a lot of a lot of kids being allowed over long periods of time to bang their heads. I mean, when you have a room with 20 kids banging their heads, screaming, all of them congregated into one room, it's terrifying. It is terrifying. And all of them were more or less classified in the same manner, retarded. And and the term then, it, it wasn't a pejorative. It, it, it literally was a description of a medical condition they had not gone through the proper stages of development in the time frame expected. Their growth was retarded. Their growth was slowed. But now the word is, is it's a curse. You know, it's a curse word. You, you, and then when I was a kid, it was, <laughs> it was shortened to you retard, retard. It was an insult. Now it's even worse. It's, it's, it's a, it's, you know, one of those words we, we ought to avoid at all costs and because it's offensive to the people being, that it's being directed at. Okay. I, um, I, I witnessed a lot of... I, I've witnessed a, a number of, of examples of, of abuse against the handicapped over the years. Uh, and, 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 and clearly, a lot of the people that, with whom I interacted treated me well, but there was an implicit, even for them, even for me, that the value 
uh, of a handicapped person, sensorily handicapped or whatnot, okay, was less. And so that's why so many people now are speaking of egalitarian and pride. I'm your equal. I can do anything that you can do. Of course I can't. If you gave me full vision tomorrow, if you, if you had a device, put it in my tongue, bzzz, and um, because of the said device, I have 20-20 vision. The pixelation ratio is 10,000, and I can see everything in color. Like, makes Jordi LaForge look like, um, yeah, you know, a caveman <laughs> with a helmet, right? Uh, you would still be better at most things, or else I would be doing said things with you. The, the the egalitarian equality of outcome, all these words are, are Marxist uh, terms being snuck in under the radar. And, and one that I kept seeing over and over again was, you know, don't pity me. Okay, I think again, in, in, in 50 years ago, when our understanding of one another was rudimentary and our grasp of language was even more rudimentary, don't pity me meant don't degrade or look down on me. It meant don't don't uh, dismiss me, having found me unworthy of being allowed to be a member of society because of my disability. It's discrimination. It's discrim- you're dismissing me uh, because of my disability, and you're valuing my worth against against your your world. And the most sinister is, of course, with uh, mentally challenged people, is that the lower down the scale you go of IQ, it isn't just that they have less to contribute according to this, this sort of vicious interpretation of lower numbers. Is that they're lower in their levels of consciousness. And, and because they are less conscious, they're less human. Look at how we, even now, you know, it, it, you know, it was in the last decade, but there was a woman in a vegetative state named Terry Schiavo. Okay, now, now, granted, God help me if I ever ended up in in a situation like that, I'd I'd probably want to go nighty night myself. Yeah? But the way the media discussed it. And the way the courts initially evaluated it was so contradictory and conflicting. But the obvious inference was, well, ultimately this person is worthless and they're suffering anyway. Put them out of their misery. Everything I've read about T4, the language was identical. Um, and so we equate value with uh, decreasing value with the diminution of sensory and mental capacity to the point where, you know, I mean, obviously, some poor person in a coma, they're never going to wake up, they're, in a, they're uh, legally brain dead, their brain is dead. Okay, that's one thing, but that reaction, and I'm not quite sure if, if that's a reaction of fear or of pity or of um, revulsion, or uh, of, 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 of a deep sort of sorrow. 
I almost think it, I equate it to the fear of uh, being buried alive. You know, being locked in has to be so much worse. And the few who have woken up, so to speak, the horror stories that they have uh, of, of, of what, what amounts to an imprisonment, the abuse that they suffer. And now we're living in, in a, uh, a country where we're about to have an explosion of disabled. Millions upon millions. It's called getting old. And there aren't enough people to care for them. And they're now beginning to understand something I never would have imagined. It's horrifying. Alzheimer's disease, it can spread from one to another. And we're learning more about certain substances that we're consuming that, that increase the tau proteins or screw up the immune system, which goes nuts and, and attacks some of the neurons. And it's the immune responses. I mean, why, why has it gone so out of control? Why has it gone so haywire? Because all of these disorders, autism, different orders of the autism spectrum, Alzheimer's, so and, and various other dementias, Parkinson's disease, it's not because there are more elderly people now than there were in the 1950s. It's true, but it's because more are being stricken by these afflictions, by these diseases, because we're being, we're, we're living a lifestyle where we're ingesting poison, processed foods, uh, weird chemicals in the environment, the same chemicals that are probably killing off all the bees. Um, but I mean, in the backdrop of all of this, we have, we have all the media who jibber jabber and yammer. We have various disability rights activist groups who are fighting for what they call equality, both of social status and of outcome. When what they ought to be saying, and some of the more lawyer types use this word, but it's buried in the rubric of their of their profession, right? Of their paragraphs and their pronouncements about egalitarianism, not of opportunity, but of outcome, which is wrong. No one, even if we're all in good health, some of us are runners and some of us are lifters and some of us are thinkers and some of us are seers. And there isn't egalitarianism in nature. What they should be saying is we want dignity we want to be fully enfranchised as citizens in this country. One uh, speaker for the blind was uh, uh, one activist, disability rights activist, as he created the National Federation for the Blind, with whom I have some disagreements, but in general terms, I admire them. I think they're very encouraging of optimism. Uh, Ken, Dr. Kenneth Jern again. He talked about no longer wishing to be second-class citizens. And, I mean, in his day, he, when he was at his prime, he could still remember 30 or 40 years prior when the ugly laws were being enforced across the country. The same set of laws that allowed institutions and physicians to sterilize 
any non-desirables whom they didn't want reproducing. He knew about uh, a lot of institutionalized blind people who had nothing wrong with them other than that they were blind. I saw the tail end of this when I was growing up. Uh, well into my 20s, there was still a factory uh, not far from where I live, maybe an hour away. Uh, it's an adjunct to our state's Center for the Blind. <clears throat> where the blind people were being paid a dollar a day to make brooms, broom handles, and to grind up cassettes, remove the little screws from the cassettes. And they'd work all day. The, the, the idea was they're inferior and they can't be useful in any way. Most of them can contribute nothing. They're blind. They can do nothing. We're doing them a favor. It's mercy to pay them a dollar a day. Sheltered workshops, they called them. Sheltered. They weren't part of the market or part of the mainstream in any way. So they were shut off from the world. They went to work each day, which had nothing to do with, with giving them means of self-improvement. It had only to do with a vocational theory, which I can't name. I mean, I'm sure there are some scholars out there listening. Maybe to me, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be quite flattered if they were. The idea of, of, of a man or woman, in particular of a man in the, in the 50s and 40s, 50s, 60s, a man who did not work uh, was seen as a, as, a, as a criminal, effectively. And they usually became, often they became criminals. But after World War II, um, it was easier and easier uh, for for unemployed, able-bodied people to sort of coast uh, and and not have to work to sustain themselves for various reasons. I'm not making a value judgment on that, the direction of our social development that allowed for that uh, yet. It's just a fact. It's what happened. And men worked and women stayed home and raised the children. Again, that's a fact. That's what was expected, and that's what it mostly was, especially in the countryside. Uh, whether or not that was just, well, we've collectively decided, no, it's unjust, and, and, and get rid of it. That's all well and good. Now we have children growing up without any parents in the home, and what I'm hearing increasingly now, uh, from all sides of the spectrum... Well, people are beginning to understand it's too late that a child must have both parents, a man and a woman, that is to say, a mother and a father, present in the home for them to grow up and be well-adjusted. You know, although, I mean, most of us are products of, 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 of divorce and, and a number of, I and my, and a number of people I know, are we okay? We certainly didn't grow up in, uh, in a functioning home. We grew up in broken ones. Mm, you know, so... How is that? It's different? Is it better? Is it worse? In order to live now, everyone has to work. 
and it isn't enough. People are still struggling to get by. What do we do? Well, and ultimately, that's all this is neither here nor there. It's beside the point and on a tangent. Because tonight I want to try to explicate what is it like to be blind. And it's so dramatically different from how most people experience reality and how nature intended us to experience it. And then by that I mean that our eyes were the last of our senses to develop. And they're the most highly developed. Human vision is extraordinary. It's extraordinarily sharp in the animal kingdom of nature. And it is required. It, it, you must have vision to survive in nature. Now, we've built strong enough nests uh, and big enough uh, uh, colonies Fortunately for me, <laughs> so that uh, the blind can live their lives without having to cope with hunting or the expectation of killing animals and, and skinning them and, and cooking them. And, you know, we don't live in such, such primitive subsistence forms of existence. But what no one understands, or at least very few, about blindness, and I mean, you can read the, the uh, American Council for the Blind, how they describe it and define it. Blindness does not mean the, necessarily, the complete deprivation of one's sight. And there are many, many forms of blindness, as there are many forms of cancer or heart disease or, or deafness or what you name it. There isn't one condition called blindness where everyone is cast into the darkness. And that's what a lot of people think, and that's what a lot of people fear, is, is that being cast into, into the darkness. Um... So, people are interested in this question. They're motivated out of fear. And they're motivated out of curiosity, too. And they're right to ask these questions. It, it comes across clumsily sometimes. It comes across, the, you know, even idiotically. And by that, I mean, I mean a perfectly able-bodied, intelligent human being who, who is willfully ignorant, you know, blind. Uh, but it's a deeper question. I mean, everything I've just said, it's all swirling around in the background, between the lines, um, in the back of people's minds, the conflicts, the contradictions, uh, the, the, the potential harmful misinterpretations, you know, sometimes that, that costs people for generations. The deeper question, and I'm going to answer the deeper question by, uh, by working with the shallower, okay? Not to say that it's a shallow question, it's not, but I'm going to address the deeper metaphysical question by answering the not so deep perceptual question. Okay, what is it like to be blind? Now, 
I am prevented from giving a full answer or an answer that is, is perfectly clear in all of its facets because I grew up blind. Uh, I didn't know. I, I tried to be a sighted kid. I thought, I literally believed if I think hard, if I think hard enough, if I try hard enough, because the harder you try, you'll eventually succeed. You just haven't been trying hard enough. You know, like so many kids who were perfectly fine, except that they had dyslexia or a learning disability, who were beaten at my school. And I mean that. I mean it. Beaten. Because they weren't tried. They weren't trying hard enough. As I was at times. There were a few times. I grew up in a a dysfunctional family. (laughs) And that was everybody's answer. And that's still the answer today for a lot of very sick and a lot of very poor people. Well, you're in the, it's your fault. You aren't trying hard enough. If you would only try harder. Well, I've got to tell you, as a child, I did. And I'm forever against and averse to ever hearing anyone say that to me. You're not trying hard. I tried to see. And I wasn't praying to God to fix me. I wasn't looking to a higher source to come to my rescue. I tried to see. I tried to play sports. I rode a bicycle. Uh, I ran around in the woods. And, and in a lot of ways, that was good for me because it made me strong. It made me coordinated. And it, and it gave me an edge. But as I said, a lot of blind kids did that. And they did it because they were being told, you can do anything that sighted people can. You're no different. What they ought to have been saying is, you are not lesser of a human being because of your disability, which very definitely prevents you from doing anything and everything that sighted people can do. You cannot see. With each succeeding uh, uh, decade, that's less and less of a problem. I mean, we're almost to the point where blind people of any level of vision loss can do anything a sighted person can do. I still want my brain surgeon, my airline pilot, and my cab or bus driver to have 20-20 vision, though. Sorry. Until they've fully perfected the Tesla, the self-driving vehicles. But in order to do that, they have to perfect AI, and that's another topic, and that, that is different. Um, the... the the first aspect of the question is, is what is it like to be blind? What they mean is, well, the big question under, underneath that, what is it reality? How is it that you can live in such a different one than I? What is real? What, uh, when they say, what can you see? What they mean is, how is it that in your reality, you have to cope with what you cannot see? You're missing so much. How do you deal with missing so much with having so little? How do you deal with in your reality? It's so dark. Aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid of being in the dark all the time? Because what the real 
aspect is behind that is, you know, you're so much closer to death. To death. Well, when you die, doesn't everything kind of go black? Unless you believe the light beyond folks and some of the stuff I was yammering about the other day. Which I'm willing to stand by, but I'm open to refutation, to being refuted. I'm no brain scientist. What do I know about near-death experience and proof of the afterlife? And I know a little bit more about the sophistry that says there is an afterlife put forth by the religion, the religions. But as I've said, none of those statements are factual. Those premises are all structured on faith. They're built from the foundation of scripture and scriptural knowledge. And what did I say of scripture? Despite its, its beauty and my great respect for our scriptural traditions, it has no validity. Zero. I understand that there's deep wisdom in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. Check. I'm there. I'm with you. I think even there's universal wisdom. I think even some of the things in that book are more wise than anything our psychologists might be saying now. I know that's a scandalous statement, but I think some of our best psychologists would agree with and approve of. There's very deep wisdom in in the book of uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes uh, and Psalms. But if you're trying to make a description of reality and you're trying to say this is real and provable using scriptural citations, your argument immediately loses any and all validity now and forever into the future. And anything you said prior, that also is gone. Its validity is gone too. They aren't, the, even, even if... I'm willing to allow for God being real. Science and religion are two totally different things. It's apples and oranges, right? It's, it's, uh, it's the difference between being an astronomer or a meteorologist. Well, they both, or an astrologer. Well, they're both looking up at the sky. They're both watching the stars. Well, that's where the similarities cease. Because the astronomer is doing this to learn about the laws of the heavens and ultimately the laws of physics. Whereas the astronomer, or the astrologer rather, is doing it to understand the laws of a specific form of magic and divination where you can draw power from the movements of the stars either to strengthen your spells that you're doing uh, if you're in line with the celestial spheres when you cast your ceremonial spell you draw your circle whatever you do you're you're in line with the moon the sun the stars the alignment of the constellations in such a manner as to strengthen the power of your spell and physicians too up until the renaissance even into the age of enlightenment some of them would practice magic to to heal their patients and they would try to get them in alignment with the celestial forces. And that would even determine which plants they would prescribe to help the sick. 
under which planet the plant the plant had to match the planet that was in the ascendancy at the time uh, against the internal balance of the four humors uh, black bile yellow bile blood and uh, and uh, God black yellow red white the bone I think the whitening I don't know the uh, breath yeah the breath the uh, the um, uh, the fifth element the the quintessence yeah and there's a massive difference between astronomy and astrology between laws of physics and laws of uh, magic of the occult even if their initial founding uh, principle uh, that they agree on is well we know how the planets and the stars move of course if you keep going back far enough the the planets were themselves deities they were gods and they were hot they weren't as the Greeks thought they were either they were light you know spheres of light but most of the Greeks thought they had matter as you ascended it changed and became more refined and more noble etc etc but the ancient Babylonians and the Sumerians believed these planets were made of light whereas the Greeks thought they were made of the same stuff as, as ours as our planet but they were moved by the celestial uh, spheres by the prime mover now the celestial spheres also had music the song of the spheres and they were able to and this is fascinating because it works this actually does work they were able to align cosmologically uh, the musical notes of the that we need to remember too that they didn't have nine planets in their universe they had five the seven musical notes on the musical scale do re mi fa to la ti do whatever uh, and uh, the seven colors as well and seven different uh, metals noble metals uh, for example, uh, uh, Saturn was lead. Mars is iron. Uh, but you can probably guess. You can probably imagine quite easily. Uh, the the sun and the moon uh, were Sol and Luna, and the moon was either silver or its closely related cousin, Quicksilver, Mercury. Mercury, the universal solvent, and the sun, of course, was gold. The all of the other metals are subject to to change, and and various matter is is uh, as the magicians and the ancients uh, believed. Then it's um, you're it's able to because it's alive, in so to speak. It evolves through different phases of existence, different levels of, of awakening, of development, until it reaches the level of the sun, which is gold. The sun is the heart, the sun, the solar, Sol. Because another thing that they believed, which actually I do, I do think is, is beautiful and poetic, and we have lost something in this case, because the world they saw outside of themselves was a direct reflection of the 
little universe inside. They didn't feel... No, I beg your pardon. Oh, eh, my head is a little clogged. They didn't feel separated from the universe around them as we do today. We take it for granted. They spoke of that which is above as, as that which is below. Uh, uh, what else would they say? I'm drawing a blank because the hour is getting even earlier, later, per se. Um, it was all one. And the big world outside of you was a reflection in a grand scale of the little world's the little universe within. And that was another thing. You could try to align those uh, and to try to heal through that. But ultimately, uh, doctors' primary acts were to kill their patients by bleeding them or giving them mercury, which would kill them, or giving them uh, other heavy metals, which would also kill them, uh, or attempts at making the Philosopher's Stone, which would also kill them. Uh, if you're Jungian, of course, you you superimpose. Uh, and it, it, it's not without a good theoretical basis of defense. You superimpose the idea of the unconscious. Uh, and you overlay this ancient system with modern psychological interpretation. And, and yes, it, it actually does work. Uh, they thought it literally explained. They um, they thought that Jung and his 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 followers they they thought that explained literally the structure of the unconscious and the reason the alchemists could make gold from lead is because they were projecting uh, when they looked into the alchemical flask the retort. Uh, uh, yeah, what is that word? And they they saw the different phases and clouds of steam and gases and colors and this and that. And they stared at it for so long in the fire for so many hours. They began to see things in the fire and they saw things in the in the flask and the beakers. And as the metals changed colors, their heart also changed states of matter. Now we do know now, of course, that given the right amount of, of energy and nuclear uh, fission, you can turn lead into gold. Yes, you can. Um, but all of this is to say that there's a massive difference uh, between the astronomer and the astrologer. Um, so... I'm not quite able to get back to where I started from. <laughs> um, so the metaphysical question of blindness at its, at its deepest interpretation is what, what is real? What is real? And the fact of the matter is uh, the two worlds are, uh, that is, the, the sensory... Um, the Welt, Welt, like in Heideggerian terms, your, your, um, your being in the world that's particular to you, 
is, is a different world than that of someone who's blind. And I can tell you this, I've, I've had this conversation with other people who lost their vision by different means. And our conclusion was, you know, <laughs> I think our conclusion was something to the effect of, wow, oh my God. Uh, so I, I knew, I went to a blind institution that was still excellent and gave excellent training aimed at, aimed at the blind. Okay, uh, we, a number, a couple of three guys, and we were discussing this. Now, I was blinded at birth, but I had a little, I could see very bright lights when I was a child, but only out of my left eye. My right eye never saw. I don't, even now, I don't have the feeling that my right eye is deprived of vision that it needs. Um, and I'll get back to that in a minute, and you'll understand me better. Uh, another another guy in his mid to late 30s at the time had been blinded by a head injury in a car crash. He went from 20-20 vision uh, from this blow to the head to zero. And that's the scenario that terrifies your average person, that they're going to open their eyes and wake up one morning and not see anything at all. Everything is black. And and uh, most people fear the dark because they can't protect themselves and they're afraid something is in the dark that will get them. I mean, and sometimes there is. Um, and a third, a third guy talking to us needed to have his eyes removed when he was born because of eye cancer. He came to consciousness never knowing, by experience I mean, what he didn't have. He felt no sense of absence or of loss. And he felt no sense of missing. And that, in that, because he had a powerfully good education and he had good support and he uh, was able to... Uh, he was a, a computer programmer and technician. He didn't miss anything. Whereas uh, the other fellow, uh, because he was blinded by a head injury, and it was so abrupt and immediate, he felt like he was in a dark room looking at a darkened movie theater screen and not being able to see it. He had the sense of, of darkness he had the sense of being in a dark room. Uh, and, and even in a way that, that he's kind of claustrophobic. Whereas I only have the sense of, of one of my eyes, and I never had vision. I could see some movement at times. If it was bright, I could see uh, colors, very basic primary colors. of, of in, in, And I mean in the greatest, most blurry imaginable way, right? You can't really call it seeing because when they'd test me, the eye charts, I'd, I'd be below 21,000. That is to say, what you can see at 1,000 feet, theoretically, I would need to be 20 feet away from that to see the same thing with the same level of acuity. But when you're that low, you're no, it's no longer measurable and you're off the charts and they stop measuring it. Just why? Legal blindness is considered 2200. What 
you see at 200 feet, I need to be at 20 feet to see the same. That's usually, mm, you can compensate with glasses, but you usually if you're at 2200, even the best pair of glasses can't give you 2020 vision. Right, so that's why they call that legal blindness. But you're not, you're not in the dark. Yet these people need to use, some of them need to use guide dogs. And they're eligible to do so. Because their acuity, they can't, they can't walk without a cane or without something to guide them uh, on their own and not hurt themselves or risk the high potential, the high likelihood that they will. They'll miss a step or they'll walk into something they didn't see that was, you know, maybe low, uh, waist level. And then, too, you're changing your light intensities throughout the day. Along with that, you're changing its texture, its wavelength, like music. You have different... different. Um, different hues of light and if your vision is 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 weak that can make the difference from being somewhat able to see the world around you and to cope with it on your own and being completely helpless and not being able to see a thing like being in the the blurriest darkest fog you can imagine but i can can walk into a building and it's not that it's unimportant to me. It is important, actually. It's unnecessary, and I'm incapable of experiencing the visual decor of that building. I am not missing anything by not having it also. But I don't... That's not a part of my sensory experience. I... There isn't a sense of, of lack. So, I mean, people live their lives trying to get that office room with a view. The good view. You know, the long view. The view out over the river. Where you're high up or you can see mountains. You know, this beautiful postcard image. You know, that's the, the view. What does having that view do? Nothing. But that's not true for, for people whose vision works as nature intended it to work. That's a dangerous statement I just made to put it in those terms, but that is in fact the truth. The way nature intended your vision to work, having an aesthetically pleasing image to look at and to interact with and to enjoy because one does enjoy seeing. That is the same as having, as being part of and as of, of possessing. That, that image, one enjoys such imagery the same way that, 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 that I might enjoy a, a great piece of music, but the same aesthetic um, please, pleasantness. That it, it, for lack of a better metaphor, it pleases the soul to have such a uh, a restorative view and it is restorative because what people see is a part of them because what you're seeing is what you want to see and I don't mean that uh, uh, okay how do I put this 
looking at something is not a passive constant. Yes, it's true that your eyes are always seeing, but what you see is according to what you look at. And what you notice in what you're looking at, because you want to see it presumably, is what's important to you. Okay, the phenomenologists called it reckoning with the possible. Reckoning with the possible when you interact with a given object, a chair, for instance. Just to keep it very simple, you know that that chair is to be sat in, and it might be comfortable or uncomfortable, as the case may be. Or you might do work when you sit in that chair. But the chair's purpose is to be sat upon do whatever task it is you have to do. Okay, that chair is, is, is uh, according to the phenomenologists, it shines. The chair uh, expresses according to its purpose. It expresses its purpose to you according to your capability of reckoning with the possible to use it according to its purpose. So everything then has its, its nature. Everything has its, its purpose. Everything is shining with its meaning is evocative of what it does, i.e. what you can do with it, right? How you use such an object. I mean, some of you listening to me, if you were to see uh, Phil Nicholson's golf bag or some of his golf clubs, for example, and you're a golfer, you're reckoning with the possible. You already know how to take a swing with your golf club uh, and which iron can drive it how far, how many yards. You know, uh, you suppose you're very good at the game of golf. That's a part of you. And if it's really a part of what you enjoy then you look at those golf clubs in that golf bag with the longing, the pull to use them. So that's what a lot of these objects that you see are doing. They are inviting. They are calling out to be used. Their purpose is to be used in that way. And your skills allow you to do this to the ability that you're able to reckon with the possibility of your achievement of doing it. And so what you're seeing isn't because you're taking in light and it's bouncing off of these golf clubs and your brain is interpreting the image that is bouncing off of your retina upside down into your brain, which that is true but you're aware of them because of their call, because of your capacity in your body to carry out that action. Because vision is all about action. It has nothing passive about it. What you see, what you look at, and this is why the ancient Greeks thought that one looked and projected a ray out into the world to identify what you were seeing. Because they understood in those days that what you see 
is strongly framed by what you want, by what you're looking to see. And your consciousness, the, the underpinning of the structure of your consciousness is according to your intentionality. And by that I don't mean what you want to go do. I intend to do this. No. The word intention in this case means your relation to a given object. You are the subject. You are looking at the object. Every moment of your consciousness is constructed of that experience at its core. Although Edmund Husserl wanted to refine uh, and to remove, even to remove the subject from consciousness and to find what is pure phenomenological consciousness. Of course, that's not possible. And although he gave it a very admirable try and his work is, is still being interpreted today because he was eclipsed by Heidegger, the Nazi. Edmund Husserl was a Jew, and when the Nazis came to power, Heidegger's overarching ambition was to become rector of Freiburg. And then, in the same way that Carl Schmitt was Hitler's favorite juror, Martin Heidegger wanted to become Hitler's favorite philosopher. And by doing this, he wanted to be the Reich's philosopher uh, and supplant uh, uh, Rosenberg. Um, he wanted to guide the underlying philosophical principles and goals of the Third Reich, according to his interpretation of phenomenology. And Husserl, Edmund Husserl, the Jew, was fired from his position. And I, I, he didn't live long after that. He died in 1938 or 9. I don't quite recall. I'd have to look at his bio. Um, but his work, uh, according to his expulsion, was also eclipsed and ignored. Not completely. I'm not saying no one knew who he was. Certainly Emmanuel Levinas did. They were leading thinkers who did know. But Heidegger was the man of the hour, even after the war was over and the Nazis were defeated. And even though he was uh, denied the right to teach in Germany for a very long time, he was considered rehabilitated, and his philosophy was never in question. And the big question that ripped phenomenology apart, you know, and still is, is, is profoundly and deeply troubling. How much of his philosophy and his philosophical interpretation is a direct philosophical incarnation of his Nazism and anti-Semitism? And for a long time, for decades, some of the, the most intelligent human beings on the planet came to his defense, and he was no dummy himself either, so... He was able to do quite a spin job. The postmodernists loved him. The, the left-wing communists, supposedly, and they were, postmodern philosophers embraced Heidegger, the former Nazi, and Carl Schmitt, the extreme former conservative, Hitler's favorite jurist, 
and and a few others. Um, they didn't survive the constant assault of civilization, good against evil. But Carl Schmidt and Heidegger did. Um, until they translated Heidegger's personal notebooks in uh, 2012, 2013, 2014. He'd been dead since 1976. Um, despite a controversial uh, interview with Der Spiegel that was done in 1966. Heidegger forbade them to publish his words with them until after his death. It took another almost 40 years uh, for them to finally realize, hey, wait a minute, you know, his, the, the whole apparatus of his thought, it, it, according to these notebooks, the notebooks were very damning. And that's a fight still being carried out in universities all over the United States and Germany and Europe. Uh, it's, it's a major challenge for the uh, continental tradition of philosophy. And I don't know its resolution. There are still books being written. There are still panels being assembled and arguments being made. I think, though, the momentum is with Heidegger, and they'll, they'll ultimately feel too intertwined, you know, the way a parasitic fungus kind of wraps around your neurons and your blood vessels and into your intestines, and so you can't cut it out and remove it because you'd kill, you'd, you'd die in the process. You'd kill the patient infest, infested by the, by, the, by the filaments of the fungus. You have to poison if you want to kill it, but that might also kill the patient. So you, I don't know, give them a drug, an antifungal, that will prevent the, the parasite, the fungus, from killing you outright. But you need to live with it until you die at last. I think that's how they were accommodating uh, Heidegger, because he's so foundational to every thinker that came after him, every thinker. Whether they were for him or against him, the majority were for him. And boy, did they love what he had to say. <laughs> and what he had to say, uh, it evolved over time. He never stopped writing. He never stopped printing books of philosophy right up until his, his death. He, he was writing. He has a massive, but Husserl has more even than he. And now his work is coming to prominence and it's an alternative to the Heideggerian uh, continental tradition. And Heidegger was the last philosopher that was respected by both schools. There are two primary schools. I'm sure I've mentioned it um, uh, just to the sake of completeness. Uh, phenomenology is part of the continental tradition of philosophy. In other words, French, German um, thinkers. Whereas, uh, in including the pragmatist, you know, like William James, the other schools is analytic philosophy. 
more built on pure logic, mathematical, verbal calculus or, or pr- propositional calculus, and where you're you're when you're writing a philosophical proof, in effect you're writing an equation, and so those propositions, the premises had better support the conclusion. Whereas in the continental tradition, yes, some of them are relying on sophisticated logical construction, deductive or inductive, but some of them are not. And what they're doing, if one could even apply the term philosophy to what they're doing, has nothing to do with logic. In fact, the exact opposite They want to destroy the logos, the word. Logos means word. Logos, without logos, we wouldn't have a civilization. Without logos, we wouldn't have thinkers philosophizing. This is all pertinent to what I'm saying when I talk about what is blindness. They attempted to answer that question themselves. But their primary struggle, many of them, I mean, they, their, their work uh, in many ways was vastly different and disparate and disagreed with each other. But the continental thinkers, especially of the mid to late 20th century, wanted to liberate uh, minorities through philosophy from the oppressive gaze, the dominant, the gaze of the domineering, ruling uh, elite. And in their consensus, ultimately, through Jacques Derrida, is the oppressive male gaze. So, logos is the word. You identify what you're seeing as yours. Any word you use is signifying an object that because you're seeing that object belongs to you. And male, because they saw men uh, in the light such that everything wrong with the world and everything that appeared to oppress people in it was their doing. So in the case of Jacques Derrida, you have fallow logocentrism. It had to be taken apart, had to be destroyed. Its domination had to be ended. With Michel Foucault, who also spoke of power and the Watchers, he created a concept of, which was already known by some, he reinvented the wheel, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, the panopticon. So, in the Panopticon, you, you're in a tower, and you can see everything from that vantage point, 360 degrees, and because you can see everything around you, you can control everything. He talked about, in, in that series of books, both the Panopticon and the birth of the prison. I think that was one of the chapters in it, actually, the, uh, by Michel Foucault. The, the panopticon, the watcher, had such power that it was irrelevant if the watcher was present because you would never know if they were watching. So you always had to assume that they were. Uh, 
And then I think if, if I understand uh, Foucault's intent as his life and writing progressed, it didn't matter if the Watcher was real or not. And of course, what's the ultimate Watcher, the ultimate knower? He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, right? So be good for goodness sake, right? God. God who knows all and sees all. The all-seeing eye. The all-seeing eye is always watching you, right? And that was a, um, an interpretation of a metaphysical state of existence. It already existed. It was terrifyingly obvious. Uh, but, but he did it in such a way that everyone thought he was the first one to ever say it. It was brilliant. Brilliant and dangerous, but, but true. He, he gave a correct diagnosis the, of the Watcher, the Panopticon. And what can the blind not do? So they have no power. So they are an oppressed group which they are in a lot of ways. But Foucault's, uh, uh, what do you call it, his prescription to fix the problem is to destroy the eye, to wipe out vision, to, and many agreed with him. And many of them set out to uh, denigrate and that this this particular observation, there's a historian of, of uh, philosophy of the Frankfurt School named Martin Jay, and in his work in particular, but many others, he talks about, he has a book called Downcast Eyes, and the very function of that book is to, to so vilify and belittle the experience, the concept, the ability to see to such an extent that it no longer holds sway over anyone. It can no longer oppress. And they did that by redefining the parameters of, of their argument by counter-attacking with blindness. <clears throat> to elevate that which they feared no less for having elevated it. And even though they, their counter-attack against vision uh, tried to destroy the vision, the blindness that they tried to elevate to replace it had nothing to do with the actual metaphysical uh, experiential understanding of blindness. So in other words, they were full of shit. Full of shit. Okay? And they knew fuck all about blindness, about one's experiences, not having vision, or, or not feeling the absence, or needing to strive to have that perfect view. So the same men and women who understood the, the underlying uh, uh, the forces that guided the vision, i.e. 
the objects are shining, they're crying out to be used. The chair, its sole purpose is, is, is calling out to you to use. The golf clubs crying out to you to pick them up and to swing them and to do a, a, a drive down the green. Okay? The little cat that, that you can see walking past you. It's, it, it is crying out in the fact that you're seeing it and it's in its existence for you to go pet it or play with it or, or pick it up or, you know, uh, uh, give him some milk or something because that's the cat's purpose and reckoning with the possible within the parameters of its purpose. That's what you see. And there's brain science to back this up. They've, <clears throat> they did an experiment where they had people, it's very famous, watching a basketball game with people in black and white shirts, the black team against the white team or whatever, and they said, count the number of times the white team scores a basket. And none of them noticed the giant guy slowly walking through the gymnasium in the gorilla suit. And I think, if I recall correctly, and this is cited like in almost any book that talks about perception, uh, he did a layup. He shot a basket himself. And not one, not one of the observers, either in the, you know, in the, in the group being experimented upon, noticed the big, giant guy in the gorilla suit. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's brilliant. Because... They were not given, they were told to do a certain task, count the number of layups. They weren't reckoning with the possible. When the guy in the gorilla suit, who was invisible to them, although I'm sure they could all see him, they blocked him out, and they blocked out his possibility because they weren't told to watch the guy with the, the gorilla suit make a layup. So the psychologists interpret it one way. Well, the brain, the brain will uh, exclude uh, according to your level of concentration and, and you block out extraneous sensory input. What the philosopher might say, the phenomenologist as I am might say, they were not given permission or they were not given the, the proper set of instructions. In other words, skill sets to notice the guy in the gorilla suit. He was invisible because they never reckoned with the possibility of his being present at all, of his existence. And so for those people, he did not exist until they played the tape back. Oh, my God. I think the guy did like a, like a high five or something. I mean, he went out of his way to be seen. But that's reckoning with the possible. That's happening to you. You're not seeing everything in your room, in your surroundings right now. When you look out of your window, you have a beautiful view. In a moment of quiet, calm meditation, you might see the whole panorama. The people going by on their skateboards... Now, the, the people playing Frisbee, if you're in a college campus, perhaps, if you're in a neighborhood, you know, the people walking their dogs, whatever. Yeah, yeah, you can see, you will see all of those things, and some of them you won't remember. But the philosophers don't 
uh, well, the psychologist, as far as I know, and, and I'd, I'd like to be corrected if I'm wrong, uh, because once philosophy, fun, fun, uh, phenomenology, and the beginnings of psychology, of the gestalt, uh, were the same. They were from the same foundational thinker, which was Franz Brentano. Because they weren't given the set of instructions to see the man in the gorilla suit, they were not given the right skills to reckon with the possible. Therefore, they were not given the framework through which to utilize the skill of seeing, because vision is a skill. It's not something you're born knowing how to do, and it's not something you're capable of doing passively. It's a verb. It's something you do, like walking. You don't think about it. You can't see yourself seeing something. And so they weren't given the right skill sets in their body because speaking is also an action. The words I choose to use are, are, are forming a both a response to and a definition of the possible. Okay? Speaking is a bodily action. It's not something that happens automatically, and it's not something, even though you do it unconsciously, you know, the same way you do a lot of things unconsciously with your body. The words are tools. The postmodernists were right about that. Words are, are uh, objects. They're abstract, perhaps, in that they have no, they take up no space. They have no physical substance until you write them. But they were not given the right words. In the instructions, they were told to look for the team shooting baskets and to count the number of baskets on one side of the teams. They were not told, keep an eye open uh, and look. <clears throat> look to the door on the far right end of the gym and notice, because thinking is also a skill. Notice the man coming through the door in the gorilla suit. They lacked the need to utilize the skill that might have allowed them to see the man in the gorilla suit. And so he did not exist. Now that doesn't work all the time. They were thinking very deeply, but it does work in your day-to-day -day life. Um, you know, according to your job and the parameters of your job. It's not a part of your reality you know, when you walk into someone's house, if you're working for the cable company to fix their cable box, it's not part of your skills to look over and see the 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 ski jacket hanging up by the fire, or if it's an, a, a, a part. See, I'm I'm always I'm a rural creature, and that's done me a lot of damage. I should have always been in a city, as much as cities are dangerous in certain ways. Uh, but I'm a being who grew up in a rural setting uh, with all of its imaginable disadvantages that one who cannot drive, you might imagine someone who cannot drive would face. But that cable, that cable guy is not going to see the ski jacket. 
Maybe they don't ski. If they do, they might notice uh, the ski boots. They might notice the, the, the deer antlers, of, you know, hanging on the wall. They might notice the, when you walk, when they walk in. They might notice your, your yoga mat if they're good at yoga. If they're only tangentially aware there's something called yoga that people do, but they don't do it, they might be able to identify that there's a mat there and go, oh, somebody might do yoga on that mat because I see the, 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 <laughs> I don't know what. But although these objects won't be invisible to you, and you'll see them sooner or later, ah, they're not immediately part of your reality. Do not confuse what I'm saying with that abhorrent idea that when the boats, when Columbus and his uh, ships, I think he had one by that point, were sailing into the harbor in the Caribbean, I am not saying that what that movie, what the bleep do we know, that actually and ultimately is proving to be somewhat uh, potentially dangerous understanding of reality. I am not saying that they failed to see the boats because they had boats. They just didn't have gigantic cloth sheets blowing in the wind and poles up in the air, but they had fucking boats. Okay, those people would have recognized that ship because they had enough boats of their own so that it was enough of a skill set to sail on the sea for them to acknowledge the existence of a fucking boat, okay? But what I am saying is your reality in its, its fundamental structure is made up not of what you're capable of seeing, even though you can see it all sooner or later, according to how good or how poor your vision is, your visual reality is made up of what you want to see. That's not a metaphysical statement in that it's not a new age statement. It's a statement of fact that you will recognize what you want according to your capabilities and their limits. And you will not notice, therefore you're not seeing, what's totally outside of your skill set, and you don't miss it. it. It's not an absent thing for you. And in the same manner, one who's totally blind, who cannot see anything at all, who is aware that they can't see, and they're in, for lack of a better term, let's call it, let's call it the dark. In their sensorial existence, they will not feel the absence. When they walk into a room, they won't miss the fact, unless they've had vision most of their life, they won't be able to, they, they have no means. They're cut off from the ability to interact with the objects in the room. But it's not a problem. They don't lack anything for it. And when you, when you hear, you, your hearing is constant, constant. And you can walk around 
that room and touch the chairs, the tables. If it's a conference room, you can eventually you'll brush your hands over the what is it? Oh, it's a it's a flat. It's kind of a flat plasticky surface. Okay, oh, it's hot. It's okay, and I hear the coffee bubbling. It's the coffee pot, and you trail your fingers down a little bit, and yes, there it is. There's the glass pot, and the spout is is right below the 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 percolator. The last of the coffee is, and you want a cup of coffee, even if you're blind. The first thing you're going to do is reach over in one direction or another and feel the cups and pour yourself a cup of coffee. You're reckoning with the possible. You're capable of pouring a cup of coffee, which is something you enjoy drinking. So you pour some coffee into the cup, which you would not have noticed. You might have heard the, the coffee maker eventually. Okay, but you want water or tea. Or maybe you don't want to drink anything at all. You're aware that people in business meetings drink out of cups because they're thirsty. But it's less important. It's more of a general skill, not a specific skill set for you according to what you're capable of doing, which is called reckoning with the possible across space and time. I'm not speaking of uh, the way a psychologist would interpret that sensorial experience, if I understand psychology correctly is the brain is getting all this information coming into it, more than you'll ever be fully conscious of, and it filters out what's not immediately necessary for you. Uh, and so it's, it's physiologically, it's blocking out, okay? What I'm saying is, yes, that may be the physiological process that your body has to do on the physical in order to construct, help construct and frame that imagery for you is that I'm saying you will see most clearly what you have the capacity within your limits to use and you will barely be aware of or fully unaware of what you have a weak, very general or no skill at all in in your body, you will not see those things because you don't need to see them. And it's, it's all about being an embodied being. And these things evoke uh, a physiological feeling to go along with their appearance with the sound of the coffee maker. You might even begin to taste the coffee. Of course, you'll smell it. And you'll want that cup because... It makes you feel warmer when you drink it. And you can feel that in your body before you even fill the cup with the coffee. And that's part of your phenomenological sensory experience according to reckoning with the possible. So you go ahead and, and you pour yourself a cup of coffee and you find the, even though you're blind, you can find the creamers. They're always next to the cups, the sugar and the little stirry thing. All those things always come together. I can walk into any office if I want and, and if I want some coffee, I don't drink coffee any longer. But once I've found one of those objects, I expect all of those other things to be within a finger's length for me to reach. Now, obviously, walking into the room, I'm blind. I'm not going to see those things. But it is part of what I can do. I can pour a cup of coffee. 
I can put sugar into it and stir it up. And I can drink the coffee and feel the warmth as I drink it and enjoy the taste of it and the smell. So my reckoning with the possible includes my ability to prepare a simple cup of coffee. So I'll notice those things at once according to my limits, my senses. That's seeing. It is active. Seeing is a bodily action. If you look out a window in the winter and you look at the ice and how it the sky reflects the blue, reflects off the ice. It looks cold. You might even feel colder looking out there and seeing that. And if you hear somebody exclaim to you, gosh, it, it, was, it was really cold out there, you'll feel the cold. But then what's even more interesting is if somebody says to you, you know, uh, Billy over in, uh, I'm, I'm leaning on this business, uh, construction uh, Billy over in the accounting department my god he's, he's a cold son of a bitch isn't he he's as cold as ice by hearing him describe to you in that way you'll remember how he acted maybe you'll remember something he said to you but as you're hearing the words of the metaphor he's as cold as ice you will feel the cold in your body those words will have the weight of your prior experiences included in their meaning. Okay, that's, that's okay, that, it's, worth, it's worth saying that again, that the words, as part of their, of their strength and their meaning to you, will include bodily sensation. They will include this, the full experience according to previous experiences that you've had. I mean, imagine if, if how much harder, you, you could still do it, but if you had never, and this is imp probably impossible, but let's imagine it's possible. If you had never been cold a day in your life, sorry, pardon me. Ugh. Ugh. I beg your pardon. If you had never been cold for one reason or another, and you heard me say, well, Billy over in accounting is as cold as ice, the words might not have the same weight for you. Ah, and you see? Why do we say that? They don't have the same weight is a way of, of uh, connoting the word doesn't mean as much to you. It doesn't describe a value based on, based on your capacity to reckon with the possible across space and time. This is how a philosopher engages a problem. How it's somewhat different than how a psychologist or a theologian would. This is how a philosopher engages with language and with sensory experiences. Uh, so, Billy's as cold as ice. You might rather, when you picture him and remember what he said and did in a cold manner, you might see him as distant, 
Why do we have a word that signifies distance? Because we live in a world of space and time. And the best way to engage the world of space and time is by seeing. Because you can take in, in an instant a whole panorama, including distance and spatial relations, across space and time. Whereas I would have to walk that whole vista that you're seeing out your window and I would have to walk up to every one of the little bushes or whatever the landscape were put in and maybe I'd have to hike all the way to the top of the mountain that's in your window frame in the view that you can see and perhaps I could do those things if I were like a, a trained professional mountaineer like uh, Eric Weinermeyer who climbed Mount freaking Everest about 20 damn times. Maybe he'll climb them another 20 in the next 10 years or less. <laughs> he would walk up to that mountain and, and climb it easily and because he's so good at mountain mountaineering, reckoning with the possible for him, a huge part of his skill set is mountaineering. And if you told him, hey, there's a really, you know, Mount Rainier. We can look out the window and see Mount Rainier. Yeah. I'm sure he's climbed Mount Rainier. I haven't met him. I, I almost did. Um, I wouldn't have asked him about Mount Rainier. I wouldn't have even asked him about Denali. I would have only asked him about Everest. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, for him, that would evoke immediately the feeling in his body of the experience of climbing Mount Everest. And so when you use a metaphor like that, yeah, you're, uh, you're evoking a physical sensation according to reckoning with the possible. The words are imbued. Now see, this was something the phenomenologists get a slam dunk with. Slam dunk. And so did the scholars of metaphor and poetry and simile and all those things. Uh, and then the structuralists and the... the, 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 <laughs> the the post-structuralists using the uh, analytical, well, it's, it's actually not analytical, but it, it's a form of analysis of language, deconstruction. They took it in a direction that was, uh, uh, that was contrary to the proper use of, of, uh, of, uh, of the words. Um, but all of this structures what you, what you see. In the metaphysical sense, what borders your capacities, you reckon with the possible, according to your bodily skill sets. What you're able or willing to do, what you wish to do, imbues your sensorial experiences, and in particular, your visual sense. What you're looking upon, the degree to which you notice it or want to notice it, you're looking for it, aren't you? Is shaped by, you must be getting tired of hearing me say this, it's shaped by your skills your skills and what you know how to do in your body. You're reckoning with the possible. What you're seeing is constructed in real time 
as you interact with the world, excluding what you're not capable of doing. You don't feel that it's a big loss, do you? That, you know, you might notice uh, the race car driver or the mountain bike or even the person riding the horse across the distant field. I can't imagine why they would be. But if you don't know how to ride, you might think the animal's beautiful, but that's because you, maybe you love animals and you know how to care for them. So when you look at the rider, what you're not seeing is what a beautiful animal I'd love to ride that horse. And you're not feeling that in your body as you watch the horse walk. You're saying what a beautiful animal and you're envisioning taking care of it. Let's say you're a veterinarian or something. That's the first thing you notice when you notice the animal. You're not interacting with the animal uh, such that you're engaging it as an athlete would, or a rider, a racer, horse racer. You're engaging it as a physician, as an animal husbandry. You're seeing the same creature that the person next to you is seeing when they look at it and don't know how to ride at all, and the only horses they've ever seen were in westerns. Like, ah, what the hell? They'd probably look away. Their experience and their memory of what they see later what they incorporate into their skill sets eventually because looking is a skill seeing is a skill a verb it's not a passive sense it's an active sense it is as though you were shining a spotlight a searchlight on the world let's accept for the sake of my arguments tonight the world really does exist outside what you're choosing to illuminate with your eyes according to your skills and your ability to reckon with the possible across space and time is framed and accentuated by the limits of those skills. Even the length of time that you look at something and notice it is probably unconsciously determined according to the degree to which you are both A, capable of, and B, desirous to perform said action. So ultimately, what am I saying? It, although there's a number of problems psychologically, emotionally, physically with you, if you can't see at all, you're blind, you're not feeling necessarily, unless you've lost your vision, which is a whole different experience, you're not walking into the room experiencing the absence of the need to see what's in it. In fact, you walk into the room and it's totally irrelevant. You, you, you can't even imagine what might be in that room that you'd want to see. It doesn't exist, although you know it does. And you know because either you've bumped into something, you've crashed into it, or someone has explained to you the contents of the room. And again, according to your skills and abilities, which are bodily, physical skills. And what usually happens with me, I'll tell you what happens usually, is if someone is explaining to me what's in a room, according to my skills, desires, and abilities, across space and time, to enact those abilities in my body, through my body, through its medium, 
I will go perform that action. Won't I? Okay, the coffee pot is to your left. You got to avoid those chairs. Two more chairs. Go around them. Whoops, that's that's Daniel. He's sitting in the the chair. He's right in front of it. He's writing. Oh, yeah, no, don't worry about him. He's he's on his uh, pilot. He's the whatever, his palm pilot or whatever. So a little more to your left. Um, there's the coffee pot right now. Reach out, touch the coffee pot. You see? Uh, the spout is facing away from you, so you have to keep walking around the table. You can't see anything. Walk around the table to the left, and you stop in front of the empty chair further to your left. As soon as you know it's a chair and you touch it, there are two things. First, you feel what's immediately under your hand, which is the fabric, the cloth of the arm of the chair. But it's a strobe, and it's only illuminating that. But you have enough hearing to have some vague idea. Well, there's a, a something next to me. You already know what a chair is, is shaped like. And so you know immediately through your body, but it's through your tactile and your kinesthetic senses of distance that you've already traveled. And in your past, you've pulled the chair out from under the table and sat down. Only in this case, it's different from the others because this time you can do this if you like. Remove the coffee pot from the coffee maker and pick it up by its handle, the glass coffee pot, and reach out for one of the cups immediately to the left and about five inches in front of the coffee pot. Okay. You set the cup down, the paper cup. It's a 16-ounce paper cup. You won't fill it all the way because you don't want that much coffee. And besides, you don't want to empty the coffee pot. Uh, you know, you want your coworkers to have that some coffee too if they like. But your cup is going to take two-thirds of the liquid in the coffee pot. You can tell it's hot. You're pouring it, you know when it's nearing the top because of the weight of the cup, the feeling of the heat coming through the paper. And the sound of the liquid splashing into the cup, it's still fairly quiet. You can hear this. And then you'll put the coffee pot back in the coffee maker where you found it. You know that if people want, what they'll do is they'll go refill the coffee maker. They'll put more coffee into the filter. You've done this yourself. You can feel that. You know, they'll fill the filter with instant coffee, and then the water comes through the coffee. And you can hear it coming through it and filling the coffee pot with more coffee. And there's the sweet and low and the sugar. And, you know, you want sweet and low, so I like sugar. But you want sweet and low, and you know that it's sweet and low because when you pick up the packets, the sugar packet, there's more weight and there's more stuff in the sugar packet. Whereas the sweet and low, um, you know, NutraSweet or whatever the fuck it is, it almost has no substance at all. And the, the little packet is nearly flat as though it were empty. But that's all right. That's all right. You open it up and you, you find the little spoon or the little stirry thingy because that's usually next to where the little packets are. If you want, you can add some cream. You know what those little packets feel like. I don't like it, but I like sugar in my tea. I don't even drink coffee. Uh, but when I used to drink coffee, I, 
I preferred to just have sugar. I almost never added cream or milk. And you stir, you know, and you pour two or three sweet and lows. They dissolve almost instantly. You're stirring the coffee. It takes nothing to stir it, and you're ready to drink. These are physical actions. You do them without thinking. Oftentimes, you do them without planning. It just happens automatically. Okay, because your body has fully in, uh, incorporated that skill according to your capabilities and your skills to interact with the physical world across space and time. So you have your coffee and you drink your coffee and you listen carefully to what, I don't know, the, the, the head of marketing department is, is saying to you, right? Uh, if you're blind, you don't care about looking out the window across the room and seeing Mount Rainier from a different angle. But you might enjoy the feeling of the sunbeam that's coming through the window and touching the side of your cheek for 15 minutes. And then the sun moves. And so the heat goes away because the sun has gone around the corner of the building and is no longer shining on that trajectory to reach your face from 93 million miles away, okay? So what, do I, what am I saying for all these, with all this, what am I saying? The, um, the vision is not, it's not taking in everything to the same degree, even though it's capable of, and according to this, the, the neuropsychologists, it is, you're just blocking out 90% of the information coming in to your eyes. But I say, what you're experiencing phenomenologically as part of your world is an extension of your identity. Without being a new ager, without being a, a weird kind of think your reality into existence, uh, for this philosophical argument, such a, a claim is unnecessary because it's irrelevant. Something either exists according to your capacity to use it, or it does not. So, what am I, what am I saying? Um, when you ask me, well, what's it like to be blind? Yes, that's what you want me to answer. But what you're crying out for in your heart is, what is real? How do I know that what's real is what I know? How do I know it's real and how do I know that I know it? Because this fellow in front of me is blind and doesn't know it. And not knowing it could kill him. But that's not even so much the issue. That's kind of a, a tertiary point and it's, it's not part of the main point. Because the main point is what is reality? And by extension, the same question using different terminology. What is truth? Whereas your second order question, the first one and the only one you ask, what you think is the primary question, what is it like to be blind? Right? You don't realize how deep a question that actually is. It is actually the deepest question that, that one can ever ask in any inquiry. Because it's the first question that, that anybody uh, uh, doing philosophy 
is going to ask, and that question is, what is there? What is there? What is there out there? And I can tell you that the sensorial experience is an emphasis of, of a blind person, obviously, but, but the way you imagine it's different is, in fact, completely wrong. Now, I, I, I'm telling you, I, and I hope I've clarified a little bit, not much. This is something I'm going to come back to again and again, both what is real and what is it like to be blind. Because when I ask myself the question of what is real, I have to plumb the depths of what it is like to be blind in order to have a better grasp of what is real. And for you who only wants to know about what it is to be blind, because you can see, will know more about what it is to be able to see, philosophically I mean, I'm not making a romantic statement, you'll know more about what it means to see, and by extension, you'll know more about what it means to be, to be a human being, to be uh, an embodied being living in the world, embedded in the world. The world's part of you, and you're part of it. And there's no boundary between the two, and you're open to the experience of the world according to your capacity to reckon with the possible across space and time. It isn't black or white, and it isn't all or nothing. Right? You will better understand what it means to be by clarifying what it means to not see so that you can better understand what it means to see. And you're not ultimately asking it to increase your consciousness about it and to improve your empathy, although it may do those things. I don't know what to use the mirror neurons in your, in your brain. It's the biggest question of all. And I understand that. Um, and, and I understand when I'm answering that question, both because of, of having been asked it so many times and my training as a philosopher, I understand what it really is. The question really is. And, and it's the biggest and most important question there is. So I can't take this lightly when I discuss this and I can't take the topic up lightly or frivolously even. And in spite of my caution, I, I needed to say these things at 3 a.m. on a random Tuesday when my family's sleeping in the other room. And it's probably not going to sound very good to you listening to me half-whispering, uh, hoping no one else can hear me in the house. But I had to do it. I had to do it now. I, I felt an intense need to do it at this very moment and it was necessary for me to do it at this moment i had to i had to and i hope it's i hope that it's something that can be enjoyed that you've enjoyed listening to i hope and that you've learned from it and so as always this episode is sponsored each and every time by the remnants of the microscopic cell walls of the algae that bloomed on the Gulf of Mexico in a Florida harbor somewhere. Yes, it's brought to you by the massive pile of dog crap on the lawn in a neighborhood somewhere 
in San Luis Obispo when you live in West Virginia, <laughs> per se. It's brought to you by the Tetragrammaton. I don't even know what the Hebrew letters look like. And Cogliostro's Bones. Thank you very much. This has been the Rogue Philosopher. Good night. Goodbye. I'm out. God bless.